everyone. Welcome to the last time of Veritas. Thank you for that, Woo. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cole Moat. I graduated another Woo. Thank you, guys. Um, I graduated from Mizzou December of 2018, a third Woo from Nick. Awesome. Um, with a degree in journalism. I jumped on Veritas staff right, right after I graduated. Something really cool about me was two months ago, I got married to my beautiful wife, Taylor. There should be pictures. That's a good one. Very professional. You guys are too kind. Oh, wow. Great reception. Um, you can see, also see Kyle doing his thing right there, too, officiating stuff. Um, it was easily one of the best days of my life. And I'm not just saying that because she's here tonight, um, but it really was. Then after the wedding, we had a quick turnaround to fly out to honeymoon, uh, Miami for a honeymoon, where we went on a cruise to Key West and Cosmo, Mexico, which are both beautiful places. And you'll see pictures up there as well, uh, just lounging and chilling. It was great. Um, and if you look really closely, you might be able to see our incredibly painful sunburns a little bit in that one. Um, we only brought SPF 30 sunscreen, and apparently it was not enough for the summer rays of uh, Florida and Mexico, and we deeply regret it. We were burnt for about a solid week there. But enough about me. I want to open up tonight with a question. Do you have compulsive shopping disorder? And yes, this is a very real thing. You can look up afterwards. I'm dead serious. And here are some of the symptoms laid out by Dr. Owen Kelly, one of the leading researchers on the topic. Preoccupation with shopping for unneeded items, spending a great deal of time doing research on coveted items and or shopping for unneeded items. That uncomfortable tension they feel is dissatisfaction. This tension they feel is when they need something immediately to satisfy them, and they seek out the quickest way to do that. These shoppers seek to remove uncomfortable tension permanently by buying the next best item. But their methods of satisfaction, Dr. Kelly says, are just temporary. Can you relate? I feel like it's all too familiar in my life. More than anything, I shop for comfort. During a stressful week, like planning your first sermon ever, I just continually picture myself sitting on the couch watching an episode of Netflix, thinking that will rest me and that will satisfy me. But just like the compulsive shopper, I just need one more episode and then I'll be satisfied. What are you shopping for that's coming up empty? Where do you feel this uncomfortable tension in your life? Where do you find yourself dissatisfied? Where in your life do you have compulsive shopping disorder? How do you get rid of that tension that's not just a temporary fix? Tonight we're wrapping up our sermon series called Not Good Enough by learning about a biblical character who just like you and me experienced that uncomfortable tension of his own. And just like you and me, he went to great lengths to get rid of it. He sought relief in the same things you and I had, in power, wealth, comfort, and relationships, and still is not satisfied all this earth had to offer. This is the story of King Solomon. His story gives us insight to why you, I, and our culture at large seem to be so dissatisfied. Just what happens when you focus on the gift, forget the giver. The story of Solomon begins around 1010 BC. Solomon began his reign of king of Israel after his father David died. The role of king of Israel is an incredibly important one. He's supposed to be the model Israelite. The king was not supposed to have multiple wives and have excessive silver and gold. The king was also not, to, was also not, not supposed to look and seek justice for the poor out of his, for his entire reign. These were sure lofty expectations of the king of Israel. But that being said, Solomon started his reign with generally good intentions. We see his intentions early on in his time as king in First Chronicles 1, 7, verse 7 through 10. And that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. 
And Solomon said to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to my father David and made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled for you, have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people, which is so great? The first interaction between God and Solomon shows how incredibly humble Solomon is. Solomon sees how small he is compared to God, and so he leans on God. He sees that God is a giver, that the kingdom of Israel is, a, is the gift. Solomon could have asked for anything, but truly at the beginning of his reign, he wanted to be a faithful king of Israel. And this response, please God. After Solomon's prayer, God responds in 1 Chronicles 11 through 12. Because this was in your heart, you, and you not ask for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, you have not asked for long life, but only asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself. They may govern whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none shall have after you. I would say Solomon nailed his interview for, as king of Israel. Almost feels like we can, we can close it in prayer and call it a day. But his story doesn't end here. Unfortunately for Solomon, it takes a major turn for the worse. It's likely Solomon wrote the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So let's listen to see what Solomon has to say about the blessings he received from God. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1, 10, and 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this is also vanity. Jumping down to verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was the word for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. And a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon started pursuing the gift, the giver, but over time he began serving the gifts. Solomon is saying that all the pleasure he chased after and all the gifts God gave to him did not satisfy. It was all vanity. Like Solomon, some of you here tonight are actually probably doing really well, maybe even thriving. Things are good. You have that awesome internship, that Instagram perfect relationship, a solid group of friends who treats you well. And genuinely, I'm really happy for you. In no way do I, know any, do I not want anyone in here to not have those things. That is what God has for you. However, I advise you to be careful, thoughtful, and thankful for what you do have if you're in a good season. Are you thanking God for those things? Are you remembering where your blessings are coming from? Or is your satisfaction slowly being shifted to those things rather than the one who gave you those blessings? Solomon's story is a dangerous warning to us if we forget the giver and focus on the gift. So what gifts did Solomon pursue? The first he mentions is alcohol. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 3 says, I search my heart with how to cheer my body with wine. This one hits close to home for me. When I came to Mizzou, that's what I thought would make me happy. I, see, I was ready to see what college had for me. I drank most nights of the week, and I have a very vivid memory of having a bottle of Burnett's in my hand. If you, don't know, if you do not know what that is, God bless you, you're very lucky. But I have that memory of having that bottle and attempting to drunkenly take a college algebra quiz. Shockingly, that quiz did not go well for me, but I didn't care. I thought that's what college was all about. I was trying to find satisfaction at the bottom of a bottle. I thought people liked me more when I was drunk. I thought getting drunk would help me avoid my real problems I was dealing with, ironically, including my grades. 
However, more than I knew, God had been working in my heart, but I was still living a double life. I was involved in Veritas and heavily involved in a freshman small group. But directly after small group on Thursday night, I'd go find my friends in my dorm and get drunk that night. My drinking didn't stop there. It continued until the beginning of my sophomore year. Looking at the campus, I was already talking to my friends in my dorm about how great the partying was going to be that year. But something changed when I got back to Mizzou. While mainly fun, getting drunk was less satisfying. What I really began to enjoy was Veritas, going to church consistently. My small group was much more fulfilling and satisfying. I began to choose hanging out with my friends sober and getting drunk with my dorm friends. But just don't take my word for it. Someone crossed an article from Vice about someone who ran into the party scene as an escape and looked for satisfaction there. This was not from a Christian perspective. This is an article about an honest person's opinion and perspective on her time in the party scene. She coped with that uncomfortable tension through partying, too. That was how she dealt with her dissatisfaction. She mentions how on Monday, all she would think about is the weekend. She would party every weekend, and that night, it worked. She was temporarily satisfied. The next day, she often felt deeply oppressed and couldn't even get out of bed. She fell into the lie that this partying was the best way to long-term satisfaction. Then she, go, then she goes on and says, it is a direct quote, over time, the positive effect of partying had diminished. The near breakdowns were piling up. Emotional highs were coupled with new lows. Leaving the party started getting harder and harder because I was afraid of the come down. Where have you seen this played out in your life? Is it a story of you or your friends? Or are you just trying out for the summer because you think it's harmless and won't affect your GPA in the fall? Or maybe this isn't your story. You feel isolated from friends who do go out and it's getting harder and harder to say no. Take it from me. Take it from this girl's story. Take it from Solomon. Alcohol, drugs, and partying doesn't solve our problems. It only temporarily diminishes them, only to come back the next day. The lure of the party life is a lie, plain and simple. And just like the impulsive shopper, it only temporarily relieves that tension. Another gift Solomon pursued th- satisfaction through was it through the things he built. Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 6 says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself, made myself gardens and parks, and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. Made myself pools from which, water, which to water the forest of growing trees. Solomon was tasked in his time with building the temple of God. If you remember from Jesus' talk a few weeks ago, the temple was a truly a wonder of the world. A picture should come up behind me of Solomon's temple. It was 90 feet long, 20 feet wide, and 45 feet high. In 1 Kings 6, we see that Solomon lived up to his task and created God's temple. It took him seven years to do so, and he did a pretty good job with it. But do you want to know what the dimensions of his own personal palace were? 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. We'll see pictures of that for comparison as well, obviously much bigger than God's temple. In other words, it was double, about double the size of God's temple. Solomon put more time, six more years to be exact, effort, and resources into his own temple. Just like one of the traits of the compulsion shopper we talked about, Solomon spent so much more time researching and creating things for his palace instead of focusing on God's temple. If you only know what a person loves, look where they spend their time, resources, and money on. So what are you building? Where are you more concerned about your own, seeking your own personal time, talent, and money to secure things for yourself? What gift are you seeking more than the giver? God calls us to build things. We saw he called Solomon to build a temple. 
and he did that. We also saw Solomon drift away from God, and he focused more on his own palace than that of himself. School, work, and building a resume aren't bad things, but they come at the expense of building a relationship with God. It proves more that you care more about the gift than the giver. Are you spending much more time on work and school than you forget to have time for the one who gifted you that job and education? Are you so focused on building your resume that you don't have time to attend church or very toss regularly? Are you too focused on self-care and rest that all you do is watch sports and play video games? But you haven't opened up your Bible in weeks. Take a look back at verses four and six again. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in, in, in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which water, to water the forest of growing trees. Did y'all pick up on all the eyes and myself? He says I and myself seven times in just four short sentences. It's incredibly obvious where, Sol- where Solomon's heart is at. When he's building his vineyards, his pools, his gardens, his parks, and his trees. He's doing it all for himself. Just like us, he falls so easily in the trap of self-indulgence that the world is here to satisfy him. The irony of this is that we all know it doesn't satisfy because we already read verses 10 and 11 in Ecclesiastes 2. When he shifted his view to what can the world do for him versus what can he do for God and his people, he was left unsatisfied. Again, he, lost, he got lost in the gifts, forgot the giver. The third way Solomon pursued satisfaction was through wealth and power. We already read that he surpassed all those before him and all those that come after him in his wealth. Second Chronicles also tells us that gold and silver were as common as stone in his reign. Safe to say if Solomon didn't have any student loans. He also mentioned in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 8 that I gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, to perform for him. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves his wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Solomon was so rich and powerful, he could ask for Beyonce, Justin Timberlake, Ariana Grande, Taylor Swift, and my boy Ed Sheeran, all to perform for him without having to ask twice. But that too didn't satisfy Harvard business professor named Michael Norton did heavy research on individuals with the least income of at least $1 million. His goal was to see if they were satisfied with their, in, with their income. He asked more than 2,000 people who had at least a net worth of $1 million, many, including many who had much over, the, over that, how happy they were on a scale of 1 to 10, how much more money they would need to be happy. And Norton says, basically everyone says they need to have at least two or three times as much to be, perfect, to be perfectly happy. A million dollars was not enough to satisfy these people. They say they need, they need more. Do you believe their answer? Do you think if they really got that income increase, they'd be perfectly happy? There's also another article that I came across that was incredibly interesting. The title of it was, The Number One Downside of Being Rich. It was totally clickbait, but I had to go for it anyways. The article talked about a guy named Timothy Kim, who immigrated to the United States at 19, with only $500 in his pocket. There are some solid investments in the stock market. He became a millionaire at 30. And here's what he said was the number one downside to being rich. People tend to think that they want this lifestyle where they're on vacation for the rest of their life. And I actually disagree. He said, I'm in this situation and I'm getting bored. 
Money's supposed to buy us happiness and satisfaction, right? If we had a million dollars, we'd be satisfied, right? But it doesn't live up to the hype. A lot of people crave to be in Timothy Kim's situation. When we hear a million dollars, we already start picturing what that money could buy us. We think of that Lambo, we think of that beautiful house that we always dreamed of having. Many of us, crave, maybe just craving that vacation lifestyle you talked about. And you want to go from beach to beach to mountain to mountain. Maybe it's the comfort of just having money, then you, you never have to worry about it ever again. Whatever it is, we see here, it's only short, short term though. Money will only leave you craving more money or leave you bored until you get that next item. But then you need that next thing, and you get bored again. It's like a cycle that is exactly like the compulsive shopper. It only relieves that tension, tension temporarily. Solomon also tried to put a satisfaction in romantic and sexual relationships. First Kings 11, verse 3, tells us he had, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. I think this is the verse we can probably just gloss over. Let's at the fact he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's crazy. Think of their work, like wife 25, like, no, nah, I'm good. But he wasn't. There's some context that needs to be broken down to fully understand this. First, a concubine is a woman who is married to someone, but has a status inferior than a normal wife, which is why the passage distinguishes the two. Also, like Audrey mentioned a few weeks ago in her talk, the Bible can either prescribe or describe. Here it is just describing what is going on, and in no way is God justifying that's okay. If you remember earlier, God actually said for kings not to have many wives. Solomon sought after the satisfaction from those romantic and sexual relationships. We count, the, we count the Solomon's wives and concubines, which again we see in text is a thousand. Solomon was able to have a different, a different sexual partner for almost a full three years if he wanted to. And we do the, we do the exact same thing. Something we all know is harmful and wrong. Pornography. According to an article from Forbes, the average age someone begins watching pornography is 11. I'm not just talking to guys either. Women viewing pornography is at 393%. It's almost one-third of viewers. Number of pages someone views per visit is nine. Let's be conservative say you only see one naked guy or girl per page. The average time someone views pornography per week is between two and three. We take that average of 2.5 times a week. If a person in the paper visit was nine, you will see at least 1,170 naked persons in one year. You'll have beaten Solomon in one year. From 2017 to 2018, one of the highest traffic pornography sites tracked an increase of 11 million more daily visits, 5 billion more annual visits. If it really satisfied, why do people keep going back? If it really satisfied, then why do these numbers keep increasing? The increasing numbers only show that pornography truly does not satisfy. It leaves us temporary and searching for more. Just like the compulsive shopper, it relieves attention for a little bit, but it's only temporary. I know this topic brings up a lot of shame. It's not my goal at all with this conversation. My goal is just to address the seriousness of this topic. And as staff, we are here for you. We'd love to be a resource for you to walk through this with you, because you're not alone. Finally, Solomon pursues having the most friends. We see Solomon do this in verse Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 
20 fed pasture cattle, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. I know we don't use cores for measurement nowadays, but I thought I'd translate that for you. That's 1,300 gallons of flour, 2,800 gallons of meal. Solomon's daily portion allowed him to have over 15,000 guests for dinner every night. My freshman year of college, I remember the first week before classes, I felt incredibly lonely. I came from Dallas all the way up to Mizzou, didn't know a single person on campus. Remember, I walked to Mark Twain Dining Hall by myself and sat alone and ate lunch. I was crushed as I saw other people eating, talking, and laughing. I thought that's what I really needed. Along with drinking, I thought having a big friend group like I did in high school would totally satisfy me. So I made it my mission to have as many friends as possible, but that didn't satisfy either. Don't hear what I'm not saying. The Bible says community and friendships are incredibly important. And I know some of you feel lonely and like you have a lack of community. And for that, I am so sorry that you're hurting. We are so glad you're here tonight with Veritas. We hope you stick around when the fall comes around. However, what I am saying is, we cannot fall into the lie that having a large group will satisfy and make us content. Tonight, we went through how Solomon tried to satisfy himself. He went to partying to satisfy himself. He tried to, he tried to build him the, be- the biggest and best things. He, tried, he thought money would satisfy. He thought romantic relationships and sex would satisfy. He thought having the most friends would satisfy. But they were all temporary, and they didn't satisfy. What Solomon is asking us throughout his story is what you're running to really satisfying. Is it really worth it? So what's the answer? Where do we go to be satisfied? In John 6.35, we get that answer. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. Aren't you tired of being thirsty? Aren't you tired of jumping from gift to gift and never being satisfied? We're all designed with impulsive shopping disorder. Now we all have a longing to be satisfied. God made us that way. We're looking to all the wrong things to solve that uncomfortable tension. There's a verse in Colossians that says, we are made for and created by Jesus. We run to other things for our satisfaction instead of the one we are designed to have satisfaction in. Solomon had everything our culture tells us is important. He had status, wealth, many sexual partners, the ability to host giant dinner parties with food and alcohol, everything you could want, and the most beautiful house. But Solomon is letting us on a huge secret that our culture is still figuring out. Those things will never have the ability to satisfy us long term. Because we are not made for those things. We are made only to be perfectly satisfied in Jesus. Are you running to the gifts or the giver? As the music team comes back up, we answer the question, so how do we find satisfaction practically? Well, John 6.35 told us, to find satisfaction with Jesus, we come to him. That is reading your Bible, praying, and taking time to quietly reflect with God. I know we say this all the time, probably being a dead horse, there's a reason we do. We wholeheartedly believe that reading your Bible and prayer are how Jesus satisfies us now. Reading your Bible and praying reminds us, just like the passages we went through tonight, that we have a bigger hope, an eternal satisfaction in Jesus. So those temporary satisfactions we run to are no longer as appealing. Reading your Bible and praying reminds us that our satisfaction is in the giver, not the gifts. Following Jesus has changed my life and so many others. Doesn't always make life easier. When I put my satisfaction in Jesus, I'm completely satisfied. 
Not to say I have contentment or satisfaction to figure it out. When I do, I look to Jesus and bring my worried soul to him. When I run to him instead of other things of this world, it is not a temporary and brief satisfaction, but an internal one. Jesus wants us to stop shopping for things that don't satisfy. He wants us to pursue him, the giver, not the gifts he gives us. He wants us to put that party life back on the shelf, put those things you're building, put that new boyfriend or girlfriend, put that big friend group, put pornography back on the shelf, and instead put satisfaction in him. Because he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Amen. Amen.